When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. One day in the early 9th century, a man was traveling through the French countryside. When he came across a mob of angry peasants who surrounded a group of four strangers, Several members of the mob began gathering up rocks, clearly planning to stone these four strangers to death. But upon seeing this particular traveler approach, the crowd abruptly stopped what they were doing out of deference to him. This particular traveler was Agabard, the Archbishop of Lyon, a powerful member of the church. Agabard demanded to know what was going on. Who were these poor innocent souls? And what had they done to invoke such anger? One of the peasants exclaimed that these people were anything but innocent. For you see, they were tempestari, or, as they are sometimes referred to, weather witches. According to popular belief at the time, these tempestari were in league with a mythical race of cloud dwellers who hailed from a land called Magonia. The legend said that these Magonians were supposed to sail the skies in storm clouds. They allegedly paid these tempestari to summon storms over farmlands during which time the Magonians would swoop down and steal the farmer's crops. On this particular occasion, these peasants believed they had captured these four Tempestari right before they could steal a bunch of corn, then unleash a series of devastating storms and escape in their cloud ship. As bizarre as that tale sounds, for centuries, long before and long after Agabard's time, there were a number of people who traveled the European countryside, claiming to be storm witches who would show up in a town threatening to churn up a devastating storm unless the farmers got together and paid them off. This magical protection racket proved to be a lucrative business for many of these Tempestari, although the consequences of getting caught extorting money this way could be severe. The punishment for being a Tempestari was typically 200 lashes, having their heads shaved, and being paraded through the neighborhood villages while the locals pelted them with stones. The historical record isn't clear about whether the four people the crowd captured that day in the 9th century were working that particular magical protection racket or not. But what is known is that Agabard rescued them from the angry mob that day. Back in Agabard's time, the belief in Maleficium, the act of doing harm through occult means was common. One such belief was that if a man abandoned a mistress who happened to know sorcery, she could render him impotent with any future bride by tying three knots in a string during his wedding. A knowledgeable witch could spread disease through a farmer's livestock by casting a spell over a piece of bread and sticking it in a tree. If a beekeeper knew the right charms, she could attract all the bees in the area to her and leave all of the beekeepers destitute. It was also believed that an angry witch could also summon much darker powers, and could even murder an enemy through such means as driving nails into a wax effigy of a person. It should come as no surprise then that during the Middle Ages witches were widely feared. Pretty much anything bad that occurred throughout the Middle Ages would be blamed on witchcraft or the supernatural. In the autumn of 1590, one story tells of a group of wicked men and women who banded together to perform a hideous ritual in an empty church close to the North Sea. 
This particular coven of witches had a grand plan to raise a terrible storm and seize control of the Scottish Empire. Supposedly, the group tortured, then sacrificed a cat over a flaming hearth. This was followed by the witches performing a ritual where they attached the hands and feet of a corpse they dug up from a nearby cemetery to the cat's paws. Then they attached the dead man's organs to the cat's underbelly. Once this gruesome offering was complete, they carried the cat thing to a pier near the village of Leth and flung it into the sea. So the story goes, right after doing so, a terrible storm arose that turned the skies black and caused the sea to churn with massive waves. A ship making its way across the ocean from Kinghorn to Leth was caught in the squall and was soon torn to pieces, killing many of the passengers on board. The problem was the witch's spell wrecked the wrong ship. The intended target was a different vessel, a royal man of war that was scheduled to make the crossing from Denmark to Scotland. On board that ship was His Royal Majesty, King James VI of Scotland, and his new bride. King James VI would later be christened King James I of England. But much to the coven's consternation, the king survived this magical assassination attempt. The story of the attempted murder came to light during the investigation of suspected witchcraft around Edinburgh. A young servant girl named Gilly Duncan was accused of witchcraft after people began to notice how adept this young girl was at nursing the sick back to health. Some people took this as a sure sign of her being in league with the devil, who had granted her healing powers. Gilly Duncan was tortured mercilessly and forced to give up the names of nearly 70 other prominent citizens throughout Edinburgh. When King James learned of Gilly Duncan's confession, he decided to observe the interrogations of some of the other accused witches. He began with Agnes Sampson, a matronly older woman who up until that point had possessed a sterling reputation. But Agnes was stubborn and refused to confess to being a witch. So her jailers went to work on her. Her body was stripped, shaved, and searched for any sort of incriminating devil's mark. These are typically moles or blemishes that were allegedly the result of the devil sucking the blood of his minions. Like Gilly Duncan, Agnes Sampson was horrifically tortured and forced to confess to witchcraft. She then went on to accuse dozens of other people she said were also in league with the devil, all of whom were subsequently arrested and punished as well. This string of accusations and executions would lead King James to write his own treatise called Demonology, about the ways officials were meant to deal with witches. King James's demonology would help create many of the early laws governing witchcraft throughout Europe. At the same time, there were also plenty of angry and frightened people throughout the land who decided to take the law into their own hands. While there are some rare cases where local villagers tolerated the presence of the local witch, usually because they offered healing or other helpful services to the community, in most instances, when the mob got riled up, there was no stopping them from committing horrific acts that were far worse than anything any witch was ever accused of. I'm Nate Hale, and this podcast is my Horcrux, and this is The Conspirators. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Back in 1772, one of the early settlers of the New Hampshire town of Wentworth was a man named Simeon Smith. If things had been just a little different, Smith might have been considered a fine and upstanding citizen of the burgeoning United States of America. Smith built a farm on the border of the town of Wentworth where he held local office. 
Along with his farm, he also sometimes worked as a tailor. Like a lot of able-bodied men of his day, he would go on to fight for the Continental Army. One of his sons would even grow up to be Wentworth's first town historian. So knowing all that, you'd think Simeon Smith would have been a well-liked and respected member of his community. Only you'd be wrong. That's because the one thing that overshadowed all Smith's accomplishments in life was everyone's belief that he was a sorcerer. According to George Plummer's 1930 History of Wentworth, Simeon Smith was believed to be the archwizard and head necromancer of this particular corner of New England. Everyone knew that Smith had magic powers, and he wasn't afraid to demonstrate them either. Some stories claim that Smith would sometimes saddle and bridle one of his neighbors out of sheer spite and gallop them all over the country roads. If any local children were behaving badly, it was because Smith had bewitched them. If someone was having trouble getting butter to churn, it was because Smith had willed it not to happen. Other stories said he could shrink himself to the size of a gnat and climb through keyholes into people's homes, or sometimes he would grow as large as the largest giants and tromp through the forests at night. Some stories about Simeon Smith also described how his black magic and patriotism would come together during the Revolutionary War. According to legend, Smith would sometimes drop whatever he was doing at a moment's notice and rush out because his second sight had alerted him to a battle occurring somewhere nearby. Although there were some people who sided with the Continental Army who applauded such bravery, there were others who thought differently. There was a Tory family named Merrill who also lived in Wentworth. They began to fear that Simeon Smith had decided to magically torment them because they supported the British. They believed that Smith had cursed their son Caleb, causing him to go deaf and to, according to the history of Wentworth, run up the sides of the house or barn like a squirrel. The Merrills decided they weren't going to sit idly by and let Simeon Smith curse them, so they decided to fight back using some of their own magic. They cast their own spell by pouring some of Caleb's urine into a bottle and setting it on fire. As the urine boiled, back in his home miles away, Simeon Smith's eyes began to bleed. Although once all the urine boiled away, Smith soon recovered. But the Merrills weren't done. Later on they tried it again, this time putting some of Caleb's blood in the bottle. Then they passed a small blade through the cork until it touched the blood, after which they buried the bottle beneath the hearth. The next day, Caleb's hearing returned. One of the very first pieces of news the young man heard was that Simeon Smith was dead. So the story goes that although Smith was gone, his magic lived on. Simeon Smith was buried underneath an apple tree per his last will and testament. But according to local legend, no children ever attempted to steal any fruit from the tree. That's because all the apples that grew on it were crabbed and bitter beyond belief. The story of Simeon Smith is unusual because it's an instance where allegedly some common people decided to fight fire with fire, or rather black magic with magic. In most other instances, though, retribution against witches usually amounted to groups of angry and scared citizens rising up to mete out justice against someone they didn't like, someone they accused of being a witch. Of course, the most famous such incident has to be that of the witch trials of Salem, Massachusetts. Between 1692 and 1693, more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft. 20 of them were executed. In 1711, colonial authorities pardoned some of the accused and compensated their families. Although it would take all the way until 2022 when Elizabeth Johnson Jr., the last convicted Salem witch, was officially exonerated. The Salem witch trials were an extension of a long period of xenophobia, religious extremism, and paranoia that had swept through Europe from the 1300s to the end of the 1600s. It's estimated that as many as 200,000 people were executed for being witches throughout this span of time. 
Although by the late 1600s, the witch trials throughout Europe were beginning to wind down, this wave of paranoia and fear would carry across the ocean to the New World. Between the mid to late 1600s, a group of settlers known as the Puritans fled to North America to escape the religious persecution they encountered back in England. The Puritans were strict adherents to John Calvin and his Reformed theology. Their beliefs centered around the supremacy of God and placed great importance on preaching the gospel and teaching scripture. Their beliefs also put them directly at odds with the Catholic Church, and in particular the Church of England. By the late 17th century, nearly every European settler in New England was a Puritan. But although the Puritans came to the New World seeking a new life and new religious freedom, they soon learned that life in this new land would be anything but easy. For one thing, they found themselves in a constant state of war against both the Native Americans as well as other European settlers. King Philip's War was a 15-month contest between the settlers and the Native Americans that ended in 1676. It wiped out a third of New England's towns, claiming 10% of the adult male population and wrecking the economy. Practically every Bay Colony resident lost someone, or knew someone who had lost a loved one. Local preachers began delivering fiery sermons, stirring up the crowds with stories about how the wilderness around them had become a breeding ground for the devil and his minions. One such rising star among the Puritan preachers was a 29-year-old minister from Boston named Cotton Mather. He told his flock of North Church parishioners that the devil could not only be found in the savage Indians who hated their Puritan ways, but also in the armies of cruel and bloody French dragoons who were massing to the north. Back in 1689, English monarchs William and Mary started a war with France and the American colonies. This conflict would go on to be known as King William's War. This war would ravage the land throughout upstate New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. It also drove a wave of refugees into the county of Essex, and more specifically to Salem Village in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Salem Village would eventually become modern-day Danvers, Massachusetts. The colonial Salem town is what would become the Salem we all know today. But as is the case with so many refugee stories throughout history, these displaced people placed a major strain on Salem's already strained resources. This caused a deep rift between the families tied to the wealth brought in from the Port of Salem and those dependent on agriculture. One person who stepped in and actually made tensions worse throughout the village was Samuel Paris, Salem's first ordained minister who arrived in 1689. He quickly gained a reputation for his rigid ways and overall greedy nature. In January 1692, Paris's nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth, also known as Betty, and his 11-year-old niece Abigail Williams began having strange fits. They complained of bites and pinches by invisible agents. They claimed their skin burned at times or they were being stabbed with needles. They screamed, they threw things, they contorted into seemingly impossible positions. Their shrieks could be heard from far away. A local doctor examined the girls and blamed their behavior on the supernatural. Mind you, I use the term doctor loosely here. This particular gentleman was considered a doctor because he owned nine medical texts and a collection of lances and saws. He could likely read the text, but not write. He was also just as likely to refuse to treat someone because he declared them to be cursed. It wasn't long after he threw up his hands with the Paris girls when another girl named Anne Putnam Jr. began experiencing similar fits. Then the doctor's own niece began behaving strangely as well. Back in 1641, after the colonists first settled in the area, they established a legal code. The first capital crime in this code was idolatry, but the second crime punishable by death was witchcraft. 
If any man or woman be a witch that is, has, or consults with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death, read the Massachusetts law. Of course, as soon as these young girls began acting strangely, the first thing many people began to wonder was if they were somehow in the thrall of the devil. A pair of local magistrates named Jonathan Corbin and John Hathorne demanded answers before this grew into a full-blown witch epidemic. Colonial officials would soon blame three local women for afflicting the girls. These were Tatuba, an enslaved Caribbean woman owned by the Paris family, a homeless beggar named Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne, another elderly impoverished woman. On March 1st, 1692, all three women were brought before the magistrates and interrogated. Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good proclaimed their innocence, but for some reason, Tatuba confessed. She claimed that the devil had appeared to her and demanded that she do his bidding. She wove a colorful story involving black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and a tall man with white hair who ordered her to sign his book. Tatuba claimed that she gave in to the devil's demands and agreed to serve him. Then she claimed that there were several other witches throughout the area looking to wipe out the Puritans. This was all it took to set the stage for the slew of accusations that followed. Soon neighbor began turning against neighbor. By May of 1692, eight Salem girls were claiming they had been enchanted by witches. Charges were leveled against Martha Corey, a loyal member of the church in Salem Village. This greatly concerned the community because if such a supposedly God-fearing woman could be secretly in league with the devil, then anyone could be. The magistrates even accused Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter, Dorothy, whose timid and childlike answers were taken as a confession. Things grew more serious by April when the colony's deputy governor, Thomas Danforth, and his assistants attended the hearings. Things ramped up from there and dozens more people were brought in for questioning. On May 27, 1692, Governor William Phipps ordered the establishment of a special court of oyer, meaning to hear, and terminer, meaning to decide, for the counties of Essex, Middlesex, and Suffolk. By the end of May, 60 witches were deposed and jailed. The first accused witch brought before the court was Bridget Bishop, an older woman with a reputation for gossip and promiscuity. Bishop insisted that she was innocent, but the court found her guilty anyway. On June 10th, she became the first person hanged on what came to be known as Gallows Hill. Within a few days of the court being established, Cotton Mather wrote a letter to the court imploring them to disallow so-called spectral testimony taken from dreams and visions. But the courts ignored this request. In July, five more people were sentenced to hang, followed by 13 others over the next two months. On October 3rd, Cotton Mather's father, Increase Mather, who at the time was the president of Harvard, also denounced the use of spectral evidence. He is quoted as saying, It were better that ten suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned. The Mathers are often considered to be some of the leading voices of reason during the Salem witch trials. At the same time, it's also true they had spent much of their time before the witch trials stirring up tensions by preaching how the devil was hiding around every corner. Where will the devil show most malice but where he is hated and hateth most, Cotton Mather once declared. The Salem witch trials came to an abrupt end after one of the witchcraft accusations was leveled against Governor William Phipps' own wife. In response, Phipps put a stop to all further arrests and ordered the immediate release of many accused witches. He dissolved the court on October 29th and replaced it with a superior court of judicature, which disallowed spectral evidence. That court would only condemn three out of 56 defendants. By May 1693, Governor Phipps pardoned all those imprisoned for witchcraft charges. Although by then the damage was already done. Nineteen men and women had been hanged on Gallows Hill. 
A 71-year-old man named Giles Corey was pressed to death with heavy stones after refusing to submit himself to a trial. It's believed that at least five others accused of witchcraft died in jail. Even several animals were slaughtered throughout Andover and Salem Village, since there also existed a widespread belief in witches' familiars. These were typically dogs, cats, and other animals who were believed to be demons who took an animal's shape. In the years following the Salem witch trials, some involved in the accusations including Judge Samuel Sewell and accuser Anne Putnam publicly recanted their roles in the trials. They both claimed they had been mistaken in their beliefs and deeply regretted their actions, although their regrets didn't actually help the dead at all. On January 14, 1697, Massachusetts General Court ordered a day of fasting and soul-searching for colonists to reconsider the tragedy of what occurred in Salem. In 1702, the courts officially declared the Salem witch trials to be unlawful. In 1711, the colony passed a bill restoring the good names and rights of many of the accused. They also granted 600 pounds in restitution to their heirs. It wouldn't be for a full 250 years later, in 1957, when Massachusetts formally apologized for what happened in Salem back in 1692. For some unknown reason, the name Elizabeth Johnson Jr. was left off this list of accused witches. She wouldn't be officially exonerated until July 2022 after a successful lobbying effort by a class of 8th grade civics students. Throughout the centuries that followed, many people have tried to come up with a reason for the Salem Witch Trials. In 1953, playwright Arthur Miller used the story of the Salem Witch Trials as an allegory for McCarthyism in his play The Crucible. Several scholars have offered different explanations for the strange behavior that occurred in Salem. One such theory that's been suggested is that the young girls who first began exhibiting strange symptoms in the village might have actually been suffering from ergot poisoning. Ergot is a fungus that's known to grow in rye flour and can cause a wide array of symptoms, including hallucinations, muscle spasms, and vomiting. Although the theory that ergot caused this girl's strange symptoms is one that's often considered as being on the fringe by many mainstream historians and scientists. And yet, the only other real explanation that anyone else can come up with are either mass hysteria, or the devil made them do it. You can see similar tales to what occurred in Salem play out again and again throughout New England, although typically on a much smaller scale. Neighbors would accuse one another of being in league with the devil, which would inevitably lead to many lives being lost or ruined. Some of these stories have become twisted up with folklore, so it can sometimes be a little difficult to figure out how much to believe. For example, in one story from Exeter, Rhode Island, a farmer was on his way carting lumber to the local market when a cat ran across the road in front of him, causing him to pull up the reins short and tossing his lumber everywhere. For some reason, the farmer instantly jumped to the conclusion that this cat was actually one of his neighbors who had transformed into a cat. The farmer had long suspected this woman of being a witch. So the story goes, the farmer pulled out a gun and fired a silver bullet at the cat. Back then, silver bullets were considered one of the best ways to kill a witch. Silver bullets didn't actually become part of werewolf folklore until the 20th century, when Hollywood screenwriters got hold of the legend. The farmer managed to shoot the cat with the silver bullet, only it limped off. Later on, it's said the suspected witch was seen limping around town after supposedly falling and breaking her hip. There's a lot we can question about the story of the farmer and the caddy shot with the silver bullet. But one horrific story we know to be true of someone seeking retribution against an accused witch occurred in Hadley, Massachusetts back in 1684, a full eight years before the Salem Witch Trials. Although in Salem, the people used the veneer of the law to execute accused witches, in Hadley, the people took matters into their own hands. Back in 1684, a man named Philip Smith lay dying in his home. 
At least according to Philip Smith, that is. Smith was a well-respected leader in his community. Throughout his life, he had been a deacon of the Hadley Church, a town selectman, a member of the General Council, and a county court justice. He was also considered something of a hypochondriac, often complaining about one ailment or another. But in 1684, when Smith claimed to have fallen severely ill, the people of Hadley began looking for someone to blame. Many fingers began pointing at an old woman named Mary Webster. She and her husband were poor. They lived on the outskirts of town in a tiny house in a field. Life was a constant struggle for the Websters. On several occasions, they were forced to turn to charity to survive. The townspeople might have looked even more charitable on Mary Webster had it not been for her rather cranky disposition. You see, Mary had a reputation as a rather nasty and spiteful woman, and she seldom spoke kindly to anyone. It was because of Mary Webster's fierce temper and tongue that soon other accusations began being leveled against her, namely, that she was a witch. It didn't help her case that she seldom attended church. In fact, it was Philip Smith, while acting as a church deacon, who became one of the most vocal of Mary Webster's accusers. The notion around town that Mary Webster was a real-life witch was only compounded further when in April 1683 she was actually put on trial for witchcraft in Boston. Her accusers in Boston claimed that behind her foul mouth lie the devil's tongue. They accused her of bearing several of the devil's children, all of whom looked like black cats. Their evidence of this came after they allegedly found the devil's marks upon her body. As the court built its case against her, other accusations began to fly that cattle would panic around her and run in the opposite direction. One farmer claimed that Mary magically flipped over his wagon, so the driver of the wagon actually went to Mary's house to tell her off. Only by the time he got there, his wagon had flipped itself back over and showed no signs of ever turning over. One couple accused Mary of entering their home and levitating their infant out of the cradle three times before their eyes until the child nearly touched the ceiling. Yet another story claims that a family was inside their house boiling water in a pot for dinner when a chicken fell down the chimney and landed in the pot. The chicken squawked and leaped out of the pot that it ran from the house. The next day it was claimed that Mary appeared around town with some strange burns upon her body. Mary was ultimately arrested and taken to Boston. Her accusers in Hadley sent along a thick sheaf of papers recounting the many crimes of witchcraft people accused her of. But the jury did not agree with all these accusations and eventually Mary Webster was found not guilty. It must have come as quite a shock then when Mary Webster came riding back into town following her trial. But although Mary Webster was found innocent in the eyes of the law, the accusations against her by her neighbors continued. During the winter that followed Mary's acquittal and subsequent return to Hadley, Philip Smith began to fall ill. No one knew exactly what was wrong with the man. But they did realize his condition was growing rapidly worse, and there didn't seem to be any earthly cure for what ailed him. Smith began suffering frequent seizures, which soon led to him acting delirious most of the time. His friends and family who helped care for him soon came to the conclusion that the devil himself must be making Smith ill. Sometimes Smith would cry out that it felt as if his skin were being pricked by hundreds of needles. His nurses searched his body for signs of damage, but there were no marks in his body. He also sometimes claimed that a woman was there in the room with him, even when he was completely alone. This led to some of the young men in town coming up with a theory of their own, that the invisible woman in Philip Smith's room had to be Mary Webster, the town witch. They decided to test this theory by having one of the members of their group stay with Smith while the others all went to Mary's home and knocked on her door. The idea was that if Mary was busy hexing Smith inside her home, then they might be able to disrupt the ritual and see if that made Smith feel better. 
Later on, when they checked with their friend who was staying with Smith, he claimed that Smith began feeling better right at the same moment the others were knocking on Mary Webster's door. The men began to notice other strange things occurring as well. Sometimes small pots of medicine that were set out for Smith vanished or turned up mysteriously empty. They also claimed to sometimes hear a strange scratching noise coming from underneath Smith's bed. Some of the men said they saw a mysterious fire break out in the bed, but then just as suddenly the flames vanished and nothing was burned. The supernatural events the men claimed to have witnessed grew more and more frequent. Some of them claimed to have seen a creature as large as a cat suddenly appear underneath Smith's covers, but when they pulled the blankets away, there was nothing there. Others said sometimes Smith's bed would shake and even levitate off the floor. All the while, Smith's condition worsened, and he became more and more gravely ill. Eventually, the men grew fed up and decided they needed to do something to help save Smith's life. The men headed to the home of Mary Webster, looking to end this one way or the other. They cursed Mary's name as they dragged her out of her home into the snow outside. They spat on the old woman and beat her mercilessly. Then they dragged her over to a nearby tree to hang her. One of the men formed a noose out of a length of rope. Then they tossed the rope over a high tree branch. They draped the noose around Mary's neck, then the men all worked together to hoist Mary Webster off the ground, strangling her. When Mary Webster finally stopped moving, the men cut her down. Then they buried Mary's body in some deep snow and returned to the home of Philip Smith. When they got there, Philip's friends and family were waiting for the news that the witch was dead. Everyone expected once Mary Webster was no more, the spell would be broken, then Philip Smith would get better. Only that's not what happened. Philip Smith died sometime the same night of Mary Webster's hanging, but it was the way he died that only raised more concerns. The story claims that Philip Smith's body remained warm to the touch even though it was the dead of winter outside. His face turned black and blue, and fresh blood dripped from his eyes and down his cheeks. The man's chest was swollen and his body was covered in bruises. It was as if someone had beaten him to death. On top of all that, there were strange puncture marks in his skin that looked suspiciously like claw marks. Not only had the townspeople's plans to murder Mary Webster not worked in saving Philip Smith's life, it hadn't worked to murder Mary Webster either. You see, somehow, despite her own severe injuries, Mary Webster survived being beaten, hanged, and buried in the snow. Because of the law of double jeopardy, she couldn't be executed twice. She went on to live for 11 more years before dying in her 70s. The story of Mary Webster was actually first recounted by Cotton Mather and his father Increase Mather. These were of course the same two men who attempted to get spectral testimony disallowed during the Salem Witch Trials. Cotton Mather published a book on the incident in 1689 just a few years before the events in Salem occurred. Although Cotton Mather and his father both believed that witches were real, just as many of their contemporaries did, the Mathers still believed that it was possible for mistakes to occur and therefore argued that justice against witches needed to be handed out carefully. At the same time, it's believed their writings helped spur the sort of hysteria that allowed the Salem witch trials to occur. In fact, Cotton Mather later republished his book against Mary Webster in 1702, changing some of the facts, but still calling for more witch trials to be carried out. So it's all the more ironic then that Mather would fall prey to an entirely different sort of witch hunt then. Nearly three decades after the Salem Witch Trials, Mather would once again act as the voice of reason, taking on the entire medical establishment. He had moved on from preaching about devils and witches to advocating the fight against a much more deadly threat, smallpox. At one point in his life, Mather studied medicine at Harvard. 
He became a powerful advocate for inoculation to combat infectious diseases. For this heresy, he was largely ridiculed. One day in November 1721, during a smallpox epidemic in Boston, a small bomb was hurled through his window that did not detonate. Attached to the bomb was the message, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you. I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox to you. Mather's reputation never recovered after that. Today we can look back and realize that fear and paranoia are the real demons that haunt us. These emotions can twist people to perform horrifying acts out of desperation and anger. People often lash out against the things they don't understand. And at times these emotions can turn frightened individuals into the very monsters they seek to destroy. Author Margaret Atwood has said that her grandmother would sometimes claim that Mary Webster was an ancestor of hers. She dedicated her novel The Handmaid's Tale to Mary Webster. She also went on to write a poem about her titled Half-Hanged Mary. She ends the poem as such. Before, I was not a witch. But now, I am one. The Conspiratist is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have no Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Susan, Jonathan, and Mary for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without you. I deeply appreciate the support of all my patrons. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. They're just like the full-length episodes, only fun-sized. I wanted to also remind you that if you can't get enough of this show, then I also encourage you to check out my new YouTube channel, Dark Chronicles. Over there, you'll find all sorts of videos featuring similar stories to these I bring you right here on this podcast. I hope you'll head over and subscribe there as well. I post new videos every week. If you're interested in my YouTube, or even becoming a patron, I'll put links in the show notes. Elsewhere, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok, where I've been posting short-form videos as well. Besides that, you can find The Conspirators on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you hear podcasts. I hope you'll tell your friends and family to subscribe and leave us a 5-star rating and review. We're also on Facebook and, well, whatever the heck Twitter is called this week. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.